0: Hey, this is Sam Hells, presenter and producer of The Profile Podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're bringing you these bonus episodes where my colleague, Andy Peck, chats to the best and brightest experts on Christian leadership. Andy has spent 17 years conducting these brilliant conversations. We're bringing you the very best of them in these special midweek editions of The Profile Podcast. Andy Peck, over to you.
1: We have noted before that one of the jobs of the leader is to define reality, to give voice to what's going on so that it can be faced and dealt with. But it is also important to acknowledge what reality is in our own lives as we come to terms with who we are and how life has affected us. I'm joined this week by a leader who has been exploring these issues. His name is Patrick Regan, OBE, former founder and CEO of XLP, and now CEO of Kintsugi Hope, Three years ago, he wrote the book Honesty Over Silence, which helps give permission for us to acknowledge when we struggle with mental and emotional health. Today, he joins me to talk about his new book, Bouncing Forwards, Notes on Resilience, Courage and Change, published by Waverley Abbey Resources. And this looks at how we can flourish amidst our challenging circumstances. There's a wealth of material here for leaders to digest for themselves, but also as they lead people battling with mental and emotional health issues so patrick uh, great to have you back thank you very much for having me um you were last on the show in 2007 so it's certainly high time we had you back uh, but <laughs> a delight a delight given the excellent book i had the chance to see a pre-publication copy so many congratulations
2: thank you thank you very much
1: um so i have a chance first for you to describe the book in your own words
2: yeah, well, um, I started writing this book in January, 2020, and it really came as a result of my last book, which you mentioned, On Sea of Silence. On Sea Silence had a tagline that said, it's okay not to be okay. And I received so many emails that were both heartbreaking and heartwarming of people telling me their story. And as I read the emails, I thought, I, I firmly believe it's okay not to be okay, but I don't want people to get stuck not being okay. I want them to thrive. So I said to my publisher, I think I want to write a book on resilience because resilience, by definition, is thriving in the midst of adversity. But then, of course, Andy, COVID hit uh, and then the unjust murder of George Floyd. And I said to my wife, you know, how on earth am I going to write a book about thriving in adversity with this as the background? And she said, you know, it's got to be for a time such as this. And as I studied resilience, I you know I looked into psychology and to theologians, uh, activism, business, poetry. I tried to draw on so many different sources. Is a lot of people describe resilience as bouncing back, and I was like, I don't want to bounce back. Um, I feel like why would I want to go back to my self that's been through so much less than what I've been through now because those lessons have taught me stuff. They've challenged my values that I've changed. And it's not that I would choose to go through it again, but um, but actually I don't want to bounce back. And we hear it on the T V all the time, you know, will the economy bounce back? Will schools bounce back will the church bounce back. And as I look deeper into the issues around resilience I found a better definition that says resilience is more about bouncing forwards. It's more about taking all that stuff that's happened, good and bad, and realising it's part of us now and how we see the world. So that's a little bit about what the book is all about.
1: No, fabulous. So it's, the sub, subtitle is Notes on Resilience, Courage and Change.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like that is really sums up where we are, isn't it? As a society, there's there's lots of change, and it's interesting actually. One of the first chapters, and you sort of almost alluded to this in your introduction, um, looks at acceptance, and it says that acceptance is the first place to healing. And interestingly enough, I did a lot of research into people that survived Auschwitz and the concentration camps and POW camps in Vietnam and they said the people that didn't survive were the optimists were those that would go i'll be out by christmas or i'll be out by easter because um, christmas and easter will come and go and they'd be heartbroken. yeah the people that survived were those that accepted the situation adapted to it but never lost hope yeah. and i sort of feel like where we're at at the moment you know it's like we've got this road map we've got all these dates we've got all these hopes and actually, maybe we we need to accept that this is going to be a bumpy road. We need to accept that as leaders. We need to accept that as individuals, uh, and adapt and change and innovate. But also, never to give hope. Never to give up hope.
1: Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I enjoyed uh, skimming through the book, uh, Patrick, very much, and and you know commend you for the research and the the background that you've you've gone into so it's it's you know both anecdotal but also uh, very very much earthed in um in in the latest psychological and emotional understanding scientific understanding um you referenced um psychologist susan david who describes the ability to put distance between our circumstances and feelings and our actions as mental or emotional agility <laughs> uh, she says how we deal with our inner world of emotions and feelings drives everything which is a a big claim but i guess most of us know this instinctively from a leadership angle but nevertheless um it's it's worth kind of highlighting and i liked her phrase courage isn't the absence of fear rather it's fear walking so i wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit in terms of your own leadership and how you found that 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 um resonance with those kind of words
2: yeah, I mean, I love I love Susan, Susan David's stuff, and um she was greatly influenced by Viktor Frankl, who oh. was in the in Auschwitz and sure. concentration camps, and and he talked about that there, there is a space between stimulus and response. And it's often finding that that, that that space. Otherwise, we respond too quickly. And, and we've all done it, haven't we, as mm-hmm. leaders? We've all <laughs> sent that email and then regretted it afterwards. And, uh, and I think the really helpful thing about Susan, David, is, is that and, – and others like Brené Brown and others have said this as well – is that is to get curious around what your emotions are trying to t- t- tell you. Because our emotions are like data. They're, they're, they're telling us something. And and I've definitely found this, I found this with the emotion of anger actually. You know, I was always taught in the church that anger is bad. And if I ever heard a sermon on anger, the only sermon I ever heard on anger was Jesus and the Money Changers. Right, um, even yes. though it's like they're all over scripture. Mm. And, you know, in Ecclesiastes it talks about don't let anger become a resident. It doesn't say don't let it become a visitor, interestingly enough. Um, you know, Ephesians talks about don't let it don't let the sun go down on your anger, but mm-hmm. I think anger is an emotional response to pain. It's telling you there's an injustice. There's telling you there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think what a lot of us have done with that anger, when stuff has gone wrong in our lives, we've suppressed it, and and then it comes out in other ways. And so, so now when I'm feeling some of these emotions, I just want to get curious. What? Why am I? Why am I feeling mm-hmm. that? Before I respond, and uh, and I think it's really important at the moment with so much pressure around. Uh, that we have that process. I mean, Susan David talks about it like this. She said, you can either see yourself as one uh, chess piece on a chessboard with one move. Um, it's like the queen's gambit. I don't know if you've seen that. It was like, yes, uh, no, I have very good. Yeah. Mind blowing, isn't it? It's mm. like, Oh my God, there are so many options mm. and almost like emotional agility is almost that step back and going, all right, there's more than one move here. There's some different options that mm. I can do here. Mm. And I need to listen to my emotions, get curious, respond with compassion and courage. And then make hopefully a really wise decision so i think yeah i think the emotional agility stuff's really really helpful for leaders Abs-
1: well absolutely and um uh, sadly to some leaders it would seem uh are uh, uh, more governed by their emotional than they ever realize and um, they think they're being rational <laughs> but actually it's it's coming from somewhere else <laughs> um, very much, um we, we need to touch on on grief patrick because you you've you very, very helpfully write about that in the book and of course we're in a at a time in, in our nation's history where, where grief is, is very much part of the, the life story of, of sadly so many at this, at this time. Um, you, you talk about the, the, the classic book On Death and Dying and the five classics, the sort of classic five stages of grief, but they didn't quite work for you. So talk, talk me through how that, that was.
2: Yeah, I guess when, um, when looking at that and thinking about the grief that I've experienced in my own life, I sort of felt like I got into one stage and then felt like I flipped back to another one. Yes. <laughs> Instead of finding there's an easy route to go through, you know, mm. to get to acceptance, so I was like, I was in anger and then I was in bargaining and then I was accepting. And, then, and I was like, I, I don't think this worked. And really interestingly, Tanya Marlow, the theologian, um, she really helped me out in this. And she said, um, uh, Elizabeth Cuba Ross, who wrote the um, five stages of grief, actually was writing that for people who were dying. It wasn't written for those that were being left behind. It was that process that people go through um, when they get a diagnosis that sometimes can last weeks, months, years, mm. and, and they get to the acceptance bit, hopefully. But she said that actually, for us, grief is messier. And uh, an, an analogy I use in the book, which I found so helpful, is if you imagine a box and there's a ball, and the ball's grief, and basically there's a pain button in the box, and the ball bounces around the box and it hits the pain button. And particularly, it's taken up most of the box after a a bereavement or after a loss, a big loss loss of a job, loss of a relationship. And over time, grief doesn't disappear, but it can get smaller. But it still hits the pain button, but doesn't hit it quite as regularly. Fascinating actually. My wife um, a couple of days ago said to me, um, she was really sad and I was like, what's wrong? And she said, I really miss my grandma. And I was like, she died 20 years ago. Wow. And she goes, well, no, I'm just having a moment. And it was almost like the balls got smaller, but it hit the pain button that day. And she was, gonna, it was almost like she was back there, you know. Hmm. And so I feel like to understand that that's going on is really helpful for people. I think that's why even during COVID, I've heard so many people go, oh, I had a really good day yesterday, but today I just feel strange, you know, just feeling and then, you know, yeah. trying to work out why you're doing that. The other thing I think is really helpful in trying to understand grief, and Tanya was brilliant at this as well. She said, if you can see grief with a capital G and a lowercase g, capital G stands for major bereavement. It affects every area of our lives. Lowercase g is for different losses. So for instance, during the pandemic, you know, uh, my daughter had her 18th. We had to cancel all of that, all her celebrations. As you can imagine, that went down well. Um, we had to cancel our holiday. Uh, we had to cancel our wedding anniversary celebrations. These are all little losses. And they're not capital G, but they still affect us. Mm. And I think what Tanya was saying is, even if it's a capital G or a lowercase g, the process of grieving is the same. Now, the challenge we have is we go, I can't grieve my lowercase g because I'm going to compare my pain with your pain. And your pain is so much worse than my pain. So my sister is an ITU nurse. My sister is on the front line every single day. And I know at the start of the pandemic, I was like, I can't talk about how I'm feeling because Bex, my yes. sister, has got it so much worse. Yeah, And she yeah. never put that on me. She never put that on me at all. It was all me. Mm. And i started in my research, started to realize actually we need to process and we need to name those emotions. Mm. And I, I think you're right, Andy. I think it's going to be such an important role for the church and for leaders. You know, mm. over these next couple of years, um, people are going to need to have memorial services, celebrations of people's lives. Um, you know, only five people at a funeral. You know, we've got to create space for people to be able to grieve well.
1: So, Patrick, I interviewed uh, Will Van der Hart recently, and we spoke about burnout and how the trauma of this last year may affect us. Um, in your book, you look at a uh, doctor, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who spoke of trauma being stored in your body. <laughs> uh, and when someone's been through ongoing trauma, it can rewire your brain to such an extent they can feel unsafe and therefore live on kind of high alert when when they're not in any danger. And I thought that was an interesting observation. And that actually, um, it's not just the the, the grief dimension of um, of this last year, but also the, the sense of high alerts that, that we've all had to face because you go, you know, you go out to the shops if you had to go, and frightened of of, of contracting something. And I just, yeah, that was an interesting dimension, which would be, be good for you to explore with us.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely true, and uh, and anxiety can be a bit like that. I think, particularly in the context that we've been in as well, I think someone said that anxiety is never allowing your autopilot to be switched on. You know, it's that sense of if you do a flight at some point the pilot is going to rest and he's going to put the autopilot on. And and, and, and anxiety is almost like you're on high alert the whole time. It's like a, a fire alarm that's going off all the time. And of course, fire alarms are really helpful because they tell you things are wrong in the house. If it's going off all the time, it's really hard for you and hard for everyone else um, because you can't live like that. Mm. And I found the research and trauma absolutely fascinating. It, the fact that it is stored in your body and not your head. And I've experienced this myself. Um, I've been through some very, big, hefty operations. Yeah, your knees, um, was it? your extraordinary leg yeah. operation, my word. Yeah, I had a big metal frame attached to my leg. It was like drilled into my bones and um, I had to be adjusted every day. So the me- I was trying to move my leg inside um, for six months. Um, so it was oh, horrendous. And, and so if I go in a hospital, my heart races. My head, I can tell logically I need to be there. You know, blood tests, x-ray, mm-hmm. whatever it is and and so i think trauma is stored in your body and i think how we process trauma is really important i think the other thing that came out of the book was this um, the research into aces averse childhood experiences yeah and yeah. that 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 really does affect the way you you know you live your life it can affect your health your diet um your life chances and so i feel like how we process this at this time is so so important and and you know and i think that's where professional psychologists can come in mm. Uh, I think that so often in the church we've said, you know, we treated prayer as a magic wand, like, you know, zap me and I'll be better. And healing is such a process and sometimes God uses medical professionals to help um, for us to process some of those those traumas that we've been through, um which I think is really important. I think then the last thing I say on it is that actually um in the book I look at what's called secondhand trauma. And I realized that as a leader that I have been to some of the poorest countries in the world. I've heard gunshots go off. I've had to, um, uh, you know, I've been in war-torn buildings that have been blown up. I've had bombs go off 40 miles away from where I am staying in the hotel and and all these experiences. And I guess, again, because of the way we don't grieve very well or, or process stuff very well, maybe, is uh, I, never, I never really processed that, you know. And I think sometimes as leaders, we're surrounded by people's pain. We don't want to be a sponge. We don't want to be the rescuer because Jesus is the rescuer. But it affects us. And it's like, how do we process that in mm-hmm. this time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, one of the things the book does very well is is the next theme, um, Patrick, and that is the theme of, of trials making us. And uh, we, we haven't talked uh, about the, the name of your charity, Kintsugi Hope, and... Um, so some listeners maybe have wondered about that as they've been hearing me talk about it but kintsugi as a word kind of connects to trials doesn't it so perhaps you could tell the story of how you name the charity and then yeah. go on to talk about the importance
2: of it yeah thanks andy i mean kintsugi is a japanese word it means golden joinery and so if we get a pot we tend to mend it with super glue and the whole idea of super glue is you hide the cracks you pretend it's not broken where is in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. So instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. So arguably the object becomes more beautiful and more unique for being broken. And uh, there isn't a pot like it on planet earth. And I know that when I went through a time of real brokenness with my physical and mental and emotional health, um, it was the image that really got me through and that God does put in the gold, that Mm. that things aren't wasted and Mm. that he uses our experiences to to, um, hopefully bring good to other people. And so three years ago now, we started a charity that really wanted to look at how do we create safe places uh, for people that are struggling. And we wanted to tackle two big issues, social isolation and mental health. And we did that by creating a 12-week program for churches to do with emotional and mental wellbeing, written in learning styles, similar, I guess, to Alcoholics Anonymous, but around well-being. But we didn't just want it to be for people inside a church. We thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could just be offered out to people in their communities? i always describe it as a little bit like weight watchers for well-being you know it's (laughs) like get some friends get some tools it's not about being mental health experts um we've got experts that can do that but it is about providing love community and support and Mm. self-management tools and uh, it's just been amazing Andy. you know um before lockdown we were working with 40 churches running these groups across the uk i think we're now at 231 with over 800 leaders um and the groups are running in on Zoom a lot, but they're also running in homeless shelters um, for mums who've lost kids to foster care, in schools, in prisons, in youth groups, in sports clubs, in businesses. And it's really been a, such a helpful thing for people in this time to, um, to be able to get that support. So, sure. yeah
1: and there's a connection obviously with your former charity xlp which we also haven't <laughs> um outlined exactly what well, that was
2: uh,
1: um came out of the gun uh kn- sorry knife problems that uh, you'd, you'd experienced as a youth worker in uh, in london
2: yeah absolutely and you know we saw something develop there in the grassroots where we were responding to some of those some of those really complex needs um that we saw on our doorstep actually
1: yeah yeah um so we, we've looked particularly at the, the, the emotional health and, and along the way at, at mental health, um, uh, Patrick. But uh, I, I, again, you quote the research that says we have anything between twelve and sixty thousand thoughts a day, <laughs> but roughly eighty percent of these are negative. And um, you will know the, the the value of quotes the positive mindset that that leaders are, are told they need to have. Um, but um you know you've had some you talked about you had the severe physical challenges you've had over the over the years and 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 developing that mindset what would you what, do, what would you want to say to leaders listening about the importance of that and and also perhaps the importance of not not following some of the kind of modern self-help type approaches to that
2: yeah i i think you know as a leader we've all been there haven't we when um basically you've been speaking and then the Christian wants to, the Christian wants to come and tell you something in love, which (laughs) is normally Q for, I want to destroy you. And and then when you go home that night, uh, if it's an evening service, um, are you thinking about all the wonderful things that people said, um, all the encouragement or is it that one Christian or that one negative social media comment? And, and then what you do is you end up agreeing with it. And you know, there's nothing wrong with constructive criticism, but you end up agreeing with it and, and it takes you into that dark place. Mm. And I think that the biggest critic we have is ourselves. Mm. And, and I think sometimes it's about recognizing the inner critic mm. and going that inner critic is just so unkind. And you know we don't mind having constructive criticism, but when it lacks kindness, like my inner critic,' there's, n- there's, there's nothing off limits. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. there's no way we wouldn't go. I just wouldn't ever talk to my worst enemy the way that sometimes we talk to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is true for leaders and and I think sometimes it's about, asking ourselves, what are those alternative voices, you know, and and, and trying to meditate on that and uh, what God says over us. And, uh, you know, how about you're doing the best you can in a really difficult situation? How about it's okay not to be okay all the time? Everyone has a bad day. Not everyone is going to like you. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) You know, everyone's allowed to have an off day. Struggling doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you're a human being actually that's not saying that we're perfect that's just saying it's a kinder way of talking to ourselves and i think that's really important for leaders to grapple with that it's almost like an internal thing that we need to not just accept it goes back to your comments about emotional agility that gap um that we need that in that sense of our thinking as well
1: Hmm. and and so being kind to yourself is something you've had to to learn and develop it would seem from the book you talk towards the end of that of that importance um any particular things you've done that you, you didn't used to do that are now uh, part of your uh, approach?
2: Yeah. I mean, I felt like, um, uh, I've had to learn so much in this area and uh, it's an ongoing process for me, definitely. But one of the things I found really helpful in the book was, um, the analogy of a resilience river. So if you imagine a river at the bottom of the river, there's all these rocks and stones and, um, and, uh, and if my level of resilience is low, then I am going to crash into the rocks. And I guess those rocks could be disappointments because life happens, church politics, I don't know, um, complex family situations, relationships. And we know that when we feel depleted, we're more likely to crash. And so I've really been through an exercise and I try and unpack it in the book is what are those things that increase my level of resilience and what are those things that decrease it? And what I've discovered through doing this and talking about it is most people can work out what decreases their level of resilience People aren't very good at working out what (laughs) increases it, you know, and so for me, uh, there's been things like gratitude. There's a chapter in the book about gratitude which isn't canceling out bad stuff. It's in fact, there's a definition in the book that says hunt the good stuff. I quite like that. Mm. Gratitude is hunt the good stuff. Look for the good stuff in every day. There's things about mindfulness, about being present in the moment, Mm. um, which is really helpful, you know, because we all want to plan everything. Mm. We can't control what's going on around us at the moment. So much is out of our control. Um, There's practical things like sleep. I am rubbish about sleep, you know, um, Mm. diet, health, all those things. Um, But actually what the process for me is, is that really healthy self-awareness, which means that I know when I'm starting to get depleted and I know the things that I need to put in my life. You know, for me, a big one is values. I've come to the conclusion that values are about priorities. They're about it's not just what you do, it's why you do it and how you do it. Mm. And if I'm not living to my values, I go right down. So, for instance, a big value for me is relationship. The last thing I want my kids to grow up and go, my dad was never there because he was always preaching. He was always doing this. He was always doing that. Because um, I really value I don't, mm. I value my relationships with my family. Mm. And so I keep myself in check a lot of the time and have other people that keep me in check as well, um, which I think keep the river high and uh, you'll be okay.
1: That's wonderful. Well, we've been talking obviously about bouncing forwards, uh, Patrick. But uh, Kintsugi hope obviously that as a charity continues, what's the what's next on the horizon for you as we come out of quotes lockdown?
2: Yeah. Well, to be honest, we we exist to serve the church, and and so our aim is to train as many people as we can to run Kitsugi groups um, all over the country. And, uh, you know, we were so excited. It's just been so amazing. I mean, there's so many non-Christians accessing it and it's just been so helpful to some folk. And Andy, I, I remember years ago saying to God, you know what, if there's going to be a big move of your spirit and it's going to be in a warehouse somewhere in America and uh, a Christian TV station, are going to beam it around the world and we're going to call it revival. I think I might just quit. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know what, if something could happen in Small groups across our country in homeless hostels and in brothels and in schools and in prisons and people's homes and coffee shops and pubs and hospitals uh, amongst the homeless community. And if it cannot be led by the great and the charismatic, but maybe by the fragile and the humble and the courageous, I'd love to see something like that. And so I, our job, I think, is just to try and fan into flame that passion that people have to serve. people around the areas of emotional mental health so so we're going to keep on keeping on um we've got a youth version to help young people student version that's come out recently as well because there are so many completed suicides in universities so um yeah so for times such as this i think it could be key
1: well patrick it's been a joy to chat with you thank you the the book again is bouncing forwards notes on resilience courage and change published by Waveling abbey resources thank you there are many things I appreciated about the interview but the importance of saying kind things to yourself and being kind to yourself resonated very much. I will be reflecting on what comes into my mind and whether the 80% is negative as has been suggested by the research. It was A.W. Tozer who said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let's be thinking well of him and ourselves as those who bear his image. Have a great week.
0: Thank you, Andy, for bringing us that great interview this week on The Profile Podcast. This show is brought to you by the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you enjoyed this episode, you are sure to love the magazine, which features news, analysis, opinion on all that God is doing in the UK church and beyond. Check out brand new articles published every day on the biggest issues facing the church and the world at premierchristianity.com. We'll be back on Friday with another in-depth conversation with a leading Christian right here on The Profile Podcast. Join us then.